Let us turn to the chapter we read, the first epistle of Paul, of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I believe that <clears throat> there are some texts in the Bible which ministers make a practice of preaching from once every year. I have to confess that if there is one text in the Bible that I would want to preach from at least once a year, it is this text. Someone once told me that my predecessor here used to preach on the words from John 3 at least once a year. Unless a man except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think it's only right that these great and glorious truths which are embodied in some of the most precious texts in all the Bible ought to be, ought to be aired as often as possible from the pulpits. Because no matter how often we look at them, how often we preach from them, how often we hear sermons on them, there will always be something in them to meet our needs. And that is why I turn without any apology to this text yet again this evening. That this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. <coughs> Some of the children here tonight may know that there is an old legend which uh, an old legend of a magic tent which states that the um, tent could be expanded to shelter a whole army and yet it could also be contracted to cover a single man. And this text is something like that. It covers the whole gospel, the whole Bible, and yet it is applicable for every single sinner. Alexander McLaren, one of the great preachers in Manchester last century, said of this text that that great gospel which fills the Bible and overflows on the shelves of crowded libraries is here without harm to its power folded up into one saying which the simplest can understand sufficiently to partake of the salvation which it offers. Martin Luther called it one of the little Bibles and C.H. Spurgeon said that it was like the whole gospel compressed into one single verse. <clears throat> now notice how he puts it. 
Notice how Paul puts it. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now I don't know from what particular area of the island every person here tonight comes from or what, from what area throughout Scotland and other countries some of you may be from. But it is possible that you may all be aware of certain sayings which are common to the village or the town or the country from which you come. Sayings which are always associated with a particular area. When Paul wrote the gospel about 30 years after the death of Jesus, into the Christian church by that time had crept these sayings. Short, pithy statements which embodied some of the great teachings of the Christian faith. There are five of them in the pastoral letters, that is the letters written by Paul to, to Titus and to Timothy. You'll come across five of these sayings. This is one of them. Whereas, you know, they didn't have a Bible in those days. You've got a Bible there tonight in your pew. And if you wish, you can read that Bible, you can memorize as much of it as you can. But these people didn't have a Bible. They were dependent upon what they heard, what was passed on from mouth to mouth by way of the teachings of the Bible. And what they did was they would put together into short sayings, short sentences, short statements, some of the great teachings of the Bible. In the same way as you have in the Shorter Catechism, the great biblical teachings put together in such statements as these, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So by the time Paul wrote this letter, he knew that this saying was commonly known in the Christian church. So he writes to Timothy and he says, you know the saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was the saying. And already he says this, it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. <clears throat> now when he uses the word faithful, what he means is that this saying has stood the test of time. Thirty years after the death of Jesus, with the Christian church springing up in various places, increasing, apostles going abroad with the gospel to many areas, and the gospel being blessed, people being converted, Jews and Gentiles, people from heathen backgrounds being converted, people with a great knowledge of the Bible being converted, the Old Testament scriptures being converted. As the Christian church sprang up and developed, there were many other people who were trying to destroy the Christian church. There were people trying to spread the gospel. Some enemies would follow Paul no matter where he went. People followed him. And then after a while when he preached, they would stir up trouble and they would accuse him of, of, of being what he wasn't and of saying things that he hadn't said. And many a time Paul was stunned and he was, he was uh, run out of many cities that he went to. And at one time he was left for dead. See, they were trying to destroy preachers. They were trying to destroy the gospel. They were trying to destroy the Christian church. But 30 years on, and Paul says, the gospel is still faithful. 
The gospel is still the same. The gospel has stood the test of time. We preach that Christ came from heaven, that he took our lake, that he died in this world, that he's alive from the dead, that he reigns in heaven, that he saved sinners, he has saved me. We preach that gospel and it is still the same. And I suggest to you, storm away here tonight, nearly 2,000 years after the history of this world is full of attempts by people to destroy the gospel. You know in the course of history that the soil of this land has run red with the blood of martyrs, men who, and women who gave their lives for this gospel. The enemy, Satan, still has his emissaries tonight. There are people here in Stornoway and Lewis, throughout the length and breadth of Scotland across the whole world, who are still trying to discredit and destroy the gospel and the Christian church. And if Paul could say 30 years after the death of Jesus, this is a faithful saying, how much more can we say tonight? This is still a faithful saying. It is still true. It has still, it has stood the test of time. It is as relevant, as vital, as meaningful tonight as it was. Christ Jesus came into the world to save them. And you and I don't know how long this world will last. But there is one thing we know for a certainty. If it goes on for century after century after century, we know that at the end of this world and the end of the world will surely come, there will still be people preaching this gospel and they will still be able to say, looking back over all the centuries, this is a faithful thing. And he goes on to say thoroughly about this. It is worthy of all acceptation. Being so trustworthy, being so true, being so meaningful, being so relevant, everyone ought to trust this message, and to trust the person of the heart of it. It is worthy of acceptation by every single individual who hears it. There is nothing in all the world more worthy of our acceptation. It has not been found wanting. People have put it to the test and have found it a bit true. And what he's saying is this. Every single person who hears it ought to put this to the test. Of course, some people will say to you, well, I tried it, and it failed me. I remember walking out to this church one night, some years ago. I met a young man walking down Tennis Street, and I started talking to him. I asked him where he was going. So I said, I'm going to the county of Tallinn. And he told me why he was going there. And uh, I asked him, uh, had he been to church? No, I said, I haven't been to church. I thought I said you used to go to church. I did. Matter of fact, you used to go to prayer meeting. 
And uh, there was evidence that there was a change in his life. Many years, some years ago. And I always remember what he said to me. I asked him, why did you stop? Oh, I said, I tried that. That's all I sham. That's all I sham. See, he had come to his own conclusion. That failed. But the great question is this. What had failed? Was it himself? Or was it Christ and the gospel? Because I grant you that strewn across the history of the Christian church night are many evidence of people who made shipwrights. People who, to all intents and purposes, believed what the gospel was saying and became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, they are no longer in the Christian church. I grant you that throughout history, you have people like that. But then the question is, what happened? Was it Christ who failed? Did he fail to save the sinner? Oh no, my friend. Christ has never failed anyone. The Bible has never failed. The Bible has never been found, has never been proved to be false. Christ has never been proved to be a false friend. One who befriends you today and is gone tomorrow. He's not that type of saviour. No one ever found him like that. And no one can ever say that he was ever that to any individual. He never fails. The sinner fails. Therefore, says Paul, the fact that Christ is a saviour is worthy to be accepted, taken on board by every individual, no matter who he or she may be. Very well then. Having introduced a thing to Paul like that, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. What is it that he directs Timothy's attention to? And oh, very simply this, as his words put it, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or, if you were able to read it in the Greek New Testament, this is the way it would read. Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. And that's very, very important. Because, I'll see in a minute, you cannot divorce the coming of Jesus into the world from the people who constituted the world into which he came, namely sinners. Because there was no one in the world to which he came but a sinner. And there is no one in the world tonight but a sinner. And that is why the gospel is relevant. Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. And here's a message tonight. For no one in this church but a sinner. And if you're not a sinner, it has nothing to say to you. And I have nothing to offer but as we're all sinners, it therefore has something to say to us. What? Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, fortunately, preaching, ministering to a people in the island of Lewis, and in many other places for that matter, it does not, it doesn't uh, take up too much of one's time to explain the meaning of these terms. Christ Jesus came into the world. 
How would you make a distinction between the two names that are given there of the Lord? Christ Jesus. Might there be someone here tonight? Who perhaps inadvertently, from time to time, uses the name of Christ only as an author and expletive. You know how often you hear it, switch on your television, almost every second program, the name of Christ is used. Walk the street, you hear it, the name of Christ. Trips off the tongue. So easy. Perhaps people never think of what they're saying. And I would say this to you tonight, if you're young, you who are young people here tonight, as you're growing up in this world, try at all costs. To refrain from using the name of Christ as a north or as an expletive. Do you know what it means? He who was anointed by God for a special purpose in this world. The sent, the anointed of God. Who did God anoint? Well, in a most wonderful way, you could put it like this, he anointed or he sent himself. It was the second person that God had who came into this world. This is what the Bible tells us, you see. We talk about the gospel, and this is the heart of the gospel. It was no ordinary man who was in the world, Jesus. It was the Christ, the sent of God, the second person of the Trinity himself, the eternal Son of God. This world, as Rabbi Duncan put it, is a divinity-visited world. Divinity came into the world. God came. Christ. The saint, the anointed. Anointed by the Holy Spirit. Equipped for the ministry that he had to accomplish. For the work that he had to undertake. And for the mission that he was sent to do. Christ. The Son of God sent Christ Jesus. Jesus. Again, people use the name of Jesus. A sword meant no more than just a convenience for expressing their conviction about something when they want to assure some people that what they're saying is either is true or something they use the word Jesus the name what does it mean well you ask a child here tonight Jesus what does Jesus mean oh that was the name that the angel told was to be given to him when he was born thou shalt conceive a son and Mary shall conceive a son when he was born thou shalt call, thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins the name that was given to the saint of God when he took our nature upon himself. Now, my friend, you're at the very heart of the gospel. And you're at the heart, you begin to, use, to think in terms of the words which are used theologically, the incarnation, the act by which God became man. And when he became man, that man was called Jesus. And the man who was, as John tells us, who we saw, whom we heard, with whom we were, that man 
was none other than God in our nature, but he was known as Jesus in this world. And as Jesus, he was able to enter into our feelings and into our experiences. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Maybe you're here tonight. You've got your own sorrow. You've got your own grief. You've got your own difficulty. Opposition to meet within the world. And so on. Don't you forget, my friend, that there was someone greater than you in the world who passed through exactly the same experiences. Jesus. He had a human heart. He had feelings like you and I have. And therefore he is able to understand the problems that you encounter in the world. This is one of the great threats of the New Testament. Writing to the Hebrews, the writer says, remember he says to these poor, persecuted Hebrew Christians, you remember he says that in heaven there is one who can have a, who has a fellow feeling with you in your infirmities. One whose heart is touched, a chord is struck in his heart when you have to endure difficulties in this world for his sake. Well, that was who came, Christ. Jesus came into this world. Now, there is one word I must say that I always try to avoid when speaking about the mission of Jesus into this world. And it's this word. It may seem very simple to you, but I think it's quite significant. I always try to avoid saying this, Christ Jesus left heaven. He didn't. He came from heaven. And the wonder of the gospel and the wonder of the person who came is this. That as he said to Nicodemus, no man has ascended up into heaven, but the son of man that came from heaven, even the son of man who is in heaven. And if you think tonight of the Trinity in glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you think of it in terms of a circle, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you think of Jesus coming to the world as an extension of that circle without it being broken. He didn't leave the circle. He came in our nature into this world. He came. Heaven was never vacated by the Son. But the Son who came took a nature in which it was possible for him to come into this world. He came willingly, sent by the Father on this glorious mission. Where to? Who came? Christ. What did he become? Jesus. How did he come? He was sent. Where did he come to? Into the world. If I left this church tonight, and you followed me, and I made my way into every hotel and pub and store away, 
I'm sure that by the end of the night you'd be perplexed with one question. What on earth was he doing in that place or in these places? I would like to think that you wouldn't associate a person like me with that kind of frequenting that kind of place. And you'd be entitled to ask why? Why? And why should you ask the question? Because the office that is represented by my likes is so different and so alien to the atmosphere that you get there. You could mention other places as well, place of ill repute. So you see, when Paul uses this term, Christ Jesus came into the world, you and I are meant to stop and ask, where? The world. What do you mean by the world? Well, the meaning of the word world in the New Testament, particularly as used by John, is that the world is an evil place. It's a place that is full of sin. Full of darkness. Full, as Paul puts it, of crookedness. This perverse and evil generation and evil world. The world is so alien to what God is. God is light. The world is darkness. This world is evil. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on the prophecy of Habakkuk, which he called From Fear to Faith. And there were lectures delivered at the beginning of the Second World War. And uh, in course of delivering these lectures, he was making a point that the great uh, liberal theologians in Britain at the beginning of the 20th century were full of hope for this world. This world was becoming wonderful. It was great. It was developing. It was progressing. It was getting far better. It was a wonderful place to be in. Man was getting better and better, becoming more friendly towards one another. And then their illusion was shattered in 1914 with the outbreak of World War I. At the end of it, they took up the cudgels again. But there was only a hiccup. The world was getting better. Then their illusion was shattered again with the outbreak of World War II. And you and I are here today in 1993. You switch on your television set or your radio. You look at your paper. Trouble distress, warfare, conflict, bomb outrages throughout the length and breadth of this world, across the whole world. Evidence of what? The goodness of man? Oh no, my friend, but the evil of man, the evil of humanity, the sinful effects, the effects of sin in the lives of individuals and governments and corporations and nations right across the world an evil world a dark world and you're part of it and if you're not Christian tonight you're not making the world any lighter than it is you're making it darker you see Christ came into that kind of environment and people ask Jesus. I wonder if he was a happy man. I wonder what kind of place he went to. Did he, did he laugh from dawn to dusk? There's no evidence in the New Testament that he ever did that. 
But plenty of evidence that he cried, that he wept, that he sighed, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And no wonder the holy son of God in a holy with a holy nature in the midst of this evil environment and Satan pouring his own dark suggestions and insinuations into the minds and hearts of people who came in contact with Jesus and into the mind and the heart of man who was closer to him one man who was closer to him than most Judas Iscariot ah yes he was in this world but that doesn't answer the question why and the next word does he came into this world sinners to say you see my friend there was no one in the world that he came to but a sinner if he came into this building tonight if he came visibly personally corporately and stood in that aisle and stood here and he looked around there's no one here but a sinner no he came into this world sinners to say he has no dealings but with sinners and that was a great mistake the Pharisees made they stood up to him one day they thought they could entangle him and they, they accused him look at this man they said he's in this world he's here and he's eating and drinking with sinners as though they weren't as though they weren't and this very often is a problem with us all others are considered to be more sinful than we are perhaps even others are considered to be sinners whereas we are not my friend that was a mistake and a great mistake and a fatal mistake that these people did, made and so Jesus turned to them and he said you're quite right. You're quite right. That's why I'm in the world. And anyone will tell them three stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. At the heart of these three stories was this great teaching. I am come to seek and to save the lost. The lost. And he has no dealings with anyone but a sinner. No business with anyone but a sinner in this world. Christ has nothing to offer you tonight if you're not a sinner. But because you're a sinner and nothing else but a sinner, he comes to you with the offer of salvation. Now then, I know that there are degrees of sin. There are some people who are classed as great sinners and others as, well, they're not as bad as so-and-so. There are maybe some poor down and outs out in these streets tonight. They're not capable of helping themselves. The dregs of society, so they're called. Lying in the gutter. What else can they do? That's the kind of life they have. Sinner. Ah, yes. But passing by as a parable of the Good Samaritan makes very clear to us there are other people in this town, this land, who are sinners as well. They may be far more respectable, far more upright. They may be TT and so on. They may not put a drop to their lips. Never been in the gutter. Never been in trouble. Highly respected members of the community. And people around the community are very grateful and rightly so. Because the lives that they live and the interests that they have 
and the service at the rent. But my friend, underneath the veneer, be it ever so beautiful or ever so disgraceful, underneath the cover, whatever cover it is on your life tonight, underneath, root large across your heart, you're a sinner and nothing but a sinner. What is it that makes a person a sinner? Is it the life that he lives? Is it the things that he does or the things that he doesn't do? Is it that he doesn't read his Bible, doesn't pray, doesn't come to church, doesn't care about God's day or anything else? Is that what makes you and me a sinner? No, my friend. That is the outworking of sin in the life. This is what makes us all a sin. And if you take nothing else with you tonight, take this with you because I'm going to quote Jesus to you. He said this, When the Spirit has come, He will convince the world of sin. What sin? They don't believe in me. There is sin. Whether you're, at, whether, you're at, whether you're a wreck out on the pavement of Kenneth Street or a respectable individual residing in your own luxurious home, wherever it may be, whoever you are tonight and whatever you are and whatever you've done and wherever you've been, if it be the case that you do not believe in Jesus, you're a sinner. You are a sinner. And Christ came into the world to that kind of person. What did he come with? And this is the final point. He came into the world to save. To save. And remember there was a word which ought to be well known in this congregation and throughout our island and throughout our land it is the word save Christ saves sinner if I was a modernist preacher or a liberal preacher if I was a type of man who didn't believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead and so on and lives in heaven Physically, and it's going to come again at the second day, at second coming. If I was that type of person, I would present to you tonight a saviour who perhaps would be able to help you, perhaps able to teach you. So, if there were some people in Paul's day, for example, to whom he wrote a letter in Colossae, they were known as Gnostics. They had a great interest in knowledge. There are many, many unconverted people tonight who are agents in the Bible and in Jesus of Nazareth and whose only interest in reading the Bible and studying is to amass knowledge. And we all need knowledge. We all need light. There are other people who want guidance, direction, counsel. Jesus presented to us. Well, of course, this is a great cry, isn't it? Jesus is our example. If you want to live a perfect life, 
Take Jesus as your example and follow the guidelines given to you in the sermon that he preached on the mount. That's what Jesus is all about. What Jesus is all about. He's a guide, counselor, teacher, example. And he's also the example for people who want to better the environment. And we should all want to better the environment. Better home. A better environment in every way, a cleaner environment. Better social conditions. For people tonight who are downtrodden and people are deprived. And Christian and the Christian church have been engaged in these things. Helping to better the lot of people who are less fortunate than others. In many respects, in some respects, every Christian should be a Christian socialist. In the best term, looking to better the circumstances of his neighbor. But my friend, if Jesus Christ is nothing but that, he is nothing for the sinner. Because what the sinner needs above all else is someone who will deal with his sin. With his sin. How can he believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If sin is unbelief, how then can I believe? If sin paralyzes, how can I be empowered? And look at the meaning of the word. He saves. Think of a man tonight drowning. What does he need? He needs someone to save. Someone to reach down and grab him and pull him out of the water. Take him out of his danger and into a condition of salvation. The Bible speaks of sin, not only as an evil and which, which endangers us, but also speaks of sin as that which paralyzes. It's a disease, a fatal disease. And the Bible tells us that if we're not saved from the power and from the evil and the disease of sin, we will ultimately perish. There is something working in us, leading us to destruction, just like a fatal disease in the experience in the life of an individual. Disease has to be treated. But that person is to recover health. That which causes his ill health has to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus does, you think. He comes into the life of the sinner empowers him to believe. Comes into the life of the sinner and shows him where there is forgiveness for his guilt, where there is cleansing for the power and the evil insidious influence of sin in his life. Jesus comes. I am come, he said, to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm going to quote to you what a hymn writer, the way the hymn writer put it once, I know I've quoted these words before, it doesn't matter, worth quoting again. Someone who was trying to use Jesus as a teacher and a guide and was missing the mark until one day she came face to face with him as a saviour and received him as a saviour. This is what she, this is where she put it. I sought thee weeping high and low I found thee not. 
I did not know I was a sinner. Even so, I missed thee for my Savior. I saw thee sweetly condescend of humble men to be the friend. I chose thee for my way, my end, but found thee not my Savior. Until upon the cross I saw my God who died to meet the law. That man had broken, then I saw my sin, and then my Savior. What seek I longer? Let me be a sinner all my days to thee, yet more and more, and thee to me yet more and more, my Savior. Be thou to me, my Lord, and this is the way now she sums it up. Be thou to me, my Lord, my guide, my friend, yea, everything betide beside, but first, last, best, whate'er betide, be thou to me, my Savior. And this is what you and I need tonight. We are all sinners, and we need the Savior. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, says Paul. And remember this, of whom I am chief. You know that? I don't know if there are any prospective ministers in this congregation tonight. Who knows? Who knows? I hope there are. You young men, boys even, I know that you may laugh at this, but of God converts you and saves you by his grace. And you ever become a preacher of the gospel. See that you become involved in the message that you preach. Look at this man, Paul. Whenever he spoke about the gospel, his heart burned. He became a, he was a flame. This means something to me, he says. I was one of the ones that Christ saved. I was the worst sinner that this world has ever known. That's the context in which this verse is placed. For this cause I obtained mercy, he says, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which would hereafter believe in his name to everlasting life. I am, as he puts it, the prototype. This is what you, it's just so he was saying this. If he saved me, he can save anybody. That's what Paul is saying. And he tells us here the kind of man he was. He went about. You know, he was a very religious man. And this is a point about sin. Paul was a very religious man. He knew the Bible inside out. He could quote it from beginning to end. And because he thought Jesus of Nazareth was a threat to the Jewish religion, he went about persecuting every Christian. He wanted to obliterate the name of Christ and Christianity from the face of the earth. Concerning, says the righteous of the law, I was blameless. And I lived a life, a religious life, full of zeal for the glory of the God of Israel and Jesus was a threat to this God one day I was going about my business and I met him I met him on the road to Damascus and I discovered I was a sinner I didn't believe in Jesus for all my religion I didn't believe what about you here tonight for all your privileges for all that you've hoped to be, for all that you have been and all that you've heard, are you still an unbeliever in the Lord Jesus Christ?
Well, my friend, Christ saves such. And when he saves you, you will discover this, that no matter what you may think of other people, I know that you probably think that there are worse sinners than you in the world tonight. But if Christ saves you, you will discover that there's no one in the world worse than you. No one a greater unbeliever than you. No one more rebellious and more resistant than you. And this is something that you'll discover. You won't become better in your own eyes the older you get. You will become worse in your own eyes. Paul doesn't use the past tense, of whom I was chief. He says, of whom I am chief. You see, a saved sinner needs a saviour every day of his life. He sees his need greater today than it was yesterday. But then you see, he's got a saviour greater than all his needs. And this is what the gospel commends, and this is the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what you need. And there is no other saviour for you under the sun, on the face of God's earth. You take him and you will discover the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of the gospel. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, do thou become our saviour and enable us to cast our cares upon thyself. Take us as we are. And thank thee that that is the glory of thy grace. That we are encouraged to come as we are. Without a single plea. But that Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Granted for thy name's sake. Amen. Amen.